You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 10th of October. And on the programme today, we looked at mental health in the workplace as figures show over half of people in the UAE are struggling with mental health problems. Meanwhile, several studies show that the estimated return on investment for employers who choose to invest in the mental health of their workplace is actually $5 for every dollar spent. So why aren't more companies in the UAE putting money into mental health. We found out with Stephen McLaren, Director of Corporate Solutions from Seven Insurance Brokers. And we also discussed why the Emirates might be a mental health hotspot. That was with Jan Gerber, who's the CEO of Paracelsus Recovery, a rehab centre in Switzerland. Meanwhile, we looked at the safety of the sea around the UAE. That's because the waters near Al-Raha Beach in Abu Dhabi are currently closed. We spoke to an oceanic biologist to find out why. Chris McCarty, our head of sport, joined us with all the latest from the Cricket World Cup. And we hosted our latest edition of Climate Conversations. Of course, our chance to look at the big sustainability stories making headlines this week. Uh, We looked at how events can become more eco-friendly. That was with the team from Ethara, who organise, amongst other events, the F1 in Abu Dhabi every year. And we also chatted to Expo City Dubai about how they're decarbonising their community, even as they continue to build new neighbourhoods. Meanwhile, as a record-breaking 98 million dirham villa sells for Abu Dhabi this week, showing that property prices in the capital are rising, we asked Andrew Coville from Henry Wiltshire Estate Agents whether he's seeing migration from Dubai. We're taking a look at mental health in the Middle East on the programme today. As it emerges that close to 40% of young people in this region aged 18 to 24 are struggling. Now that is from the Mental State of the World report. It was published last year and it suggests that as you can imagine, you know, we always put it down to the pandemic, but indeed the pandemic created a sense of isolation. There's also a strong links with mobile phones. Uh, and and the, the reason why mobile phones are coming under the spotlight, because it means that people are spending less time making human connections. Now, there are you know, once I got into this subject, I tell you, I found so many more really worrying statistics. You know, for example, just back in 2020, so that's pre-pandemic, a study found that 57% of people in the UAE suffered from at least one mental health disorder. Half of that number had anxiety and a third depression. And I know that lots of people listening to the radio now might struggle with one of those conditions. If you are one of those people, um, and uh, I'd I'd love to hear from you. You know, it's one of those days when it it is officially Mental Health Day today. And I think it's one of those days when we can all sort of reach out to each other to a certain extent, Um, you know, get in touch, make those human connections, even if they are only uh, through the WhatsApp or the text line. But I really would love to hear from you, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 I don't just just want to hear from you if you're if you're struggling I want to hear whether or not you've managed to get help um, whether or not your workplace whether or not your employer offered help 
and uh, whether or not you could get help via your insurance company, your health insurance company. We're going to really put the focus on that in the next uh, 15 minutes or so because we're going to be joined uh, by an insurance broker because I know that mental health is often not covered by insurance. So we're going to look into that in a few minutes time. But, but actually joining me in this studio now to discuss why this is a particular problem in the Middle East is expert Jan Gerber. He is the CEO of Parcelous Recovery. They're a rehab centre actually based in Switzerland. Um, Jan, and I've realised I'm probably saying your name wrong. Is it Jan? Uh, you can say Jan. It yeah. is Jan, I it thought Jan. so. Fantastic. Really lovely to have you join us in the studio. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Now, your clinic attracts patients from all around the world. That gives you quite a sort of unique position in some ways because you can get a sense of, you know, maybe where there might be hot spots. Have you noticed an uptick in people more widely looking for treatment? Oh, absolutely, Georgia. So since the pandemic, uh, I think it's, it's a global phenomenon that uh, people are more struggling with mental health and people are also more looking for, for help uh, worldwide. There are some regional differences, but overall, it's definitely a global trend. Have you noticed um, uh, people from the Middle East coming? I mean, because to travel all the way to Switzerland, you, re- you really are looking for, for help in a, in a serious way in that situation. I think if you're looking for, you know, for inpatient treatment, it's, it's always serious. Yes. Um, we've, uh, we've about the 40 to 50 percent of our clients uh, do come from the, from the Gulf region. Um, there's several reasons why they might travel abroad. Uh, you know, looking for state-of-the-art treatment uh, is one. Uh, but also if you look at uh, just, just the, the robustness of the healthcare system uh, or, or the mental health side of it, um, there are vast differences around the world. Um, so... Uh, here in the Gulf region, you know, it's, it's about a tenth uh, of the a number of psychiatrists per 100,000 people compared to the United States, um, where there is even a shortage in the United States. So you can just imagine what that means. So there will be a lot of people uh, in the region looking for help, but not finding help or being on, on endless wait lists. So that might be a reason as well. So even uh, it is expensive, uh, you know, for many to travel, the travel costs, uh, accommodation, all of that, and then also the opportunity costs being away from work and so on. Um, um, it might just be worthwhile for the family to chip in and, uh, you know, make the journey happen. Mm, I mean, what we've really noticed here, and oddly enough, I've noticed it on a on a personal level, actually. Um, you know, we wanted to get a counsellor for one of my children at one stage. And there are some really great counsellors here. But you are quite right. They are completely full up. You can't even get, you know, a Zoom in- interview with them, a Zoom session with them. Um, and we have therefore seen, you know, quite an explosion in the Middle East of, uh, you know, of mental health services. But the reality is, is that there just aren't enough counsellors in the world, are there? I mean, that's the problem that people don't seem to be training up for it as, as much as is needed. Absolutely. I think the problem is twofold. It's that there is not uh, enough capacity. Uh, there's also not enough in training. And uh, I guess to some degree also the, the profession is not attractive enough to, to, uh, to, to attract enough uh, people. And, uh, you know, we always uh, a lack of 10, 20 years behind. So we're training now the psychiatrists and psychologists uh, of tomorrow. Um, so even looking at the students uh, today uh, going into the profession in, in a decade or two, um, there, is a, there will be an even bigger squeeze uh, going forward. Uh, and the other um, part of the problem, I think, is, is still an over, um, uh, overly focus on medication um, as, uh, as the solution um, that, that also uh, varies regionally. Um, but uh, the prevention, you know, um, is, is something we, we need to talk about more. There's a, a lot of uh, things that we can do to, to uh, prevent mental health issues of our kids in the future. Um, 
uh, that's to some degree a, a policy uh, topic, but it's also just a public awareness uh, issue. So we just need to talk mental health more. And I think that can alleviate some of the shortage of actual professionals. Do you think there is still a taboo in the Middle East, maybe around more among the sort of Arab communities maybe than the expat communities around mental health and asking for help. Does that, does that still stand or, or am I, is well, an, old, an old stereotype? Well, Frankie, Georgia, there is still a, a taboo or stigma all around the world. Even in the, you know, in the Western Hemisphere uh, where we've, I guess, come a long way uh, talking openly about mental health and breaking through the stigma, um, you still struggle to find employment if you have a, a mental health uh, struggle on uh, you know, in, in your history or your, your references, yeah. as you, people are still trying to hide that. People are still trying to hide the, uh, the mental health struggles from families and friends because uh, there's still massive shame involved. Now, uh, in the Middle East, that's, uh, and especially uh, among local uh, people, uh, local families, um, that's even more so. Absolutely. Uh, so there's shame, um, there's stigma, but there's also real life material implications. Um, the, you know, social status, uh, finding uh, a job or uh, risking losing a job. Um, that's all real matters that, uh, that then influence if you decide to, to look for help for yourself or for a loved one or just try to sit it out in quiet. Is there still a division between men and women looking for help? Um, frankly, we see that less and less. Um, also, the, uh, the notion that, you know, men should be strong and, sh- you know, sh- basically shouldn't cry, all of that. Um, I think that's been really breaking down. So we see men equally uh, mm-hmm. susceptible to, but also uh, looking for solutions when it comes to mental health struggles. Oh, well, that at, that at least is one good piece of news that, that, you know, men are feeling more comfortable about coming forward. I, I know that, for example, still that there are... Um, do you know, I know, I'm not actually even sure if I'm allowed to talk about it in detail on the radio, but for young men, I know that one of the, that, that one of the biggest causes of death is, is due to mental health mm. issues. Um, I mean, do you think that the UAE is a hotspot for mental health problems? You know, we are such a melting pot of nations here. In some ways, it would seem strange that, that you know, that we would, we would become sort of one of the world's hotspots for mental health problems. But but then equally, you know, we all work very hard here and there's been lots of studies out suggesting that we work harder than anywhere else. Uh, and of course, that is one of the reasons why you get employee burnout and, and people struggling. Um, yeah, well, working hard is definitely a, a risk factor, uh, especially if you feel pressure to work hard in order to keep up. Um, but another big factor, particularly amongst uh, a country uh, like the UAE with a massive uh, expat community, um, as an expat, by definition, you're away from home, you're away from you know, the friends and families uh, you grew up with. And whilst there are expat communities here and you can connect you know, with people from, from, from your home country and all that, but working hard you know, often prevents you from actually those important social connections. So it's actually a lonely, isolating place, uh, all things uh, equal, um, working as an expat in this country. You must um, speak to business leaders all the time, you know, sort of C-suite type execs. When you have your sort of conversations with them, are they sympathetic to the idea of introducing mental health assistance to their employers, employees? I always struggle with the employer, employees. That's actually a very complex topic. You know, years ago, uh, you know, global leading companies such as Google have introduced free counselling for their employees. Um, from from a perspective of realizing that um, 
that uh, if employees who struggle are, you know, are probably less productive, are more prone to make mistakes and all that. So there's an economic uh, side to that. It does make sense to, to, to invest in their mental well-being of, of your employees. So not just the physical well-being, you have a gym, uh, you know, in the, in the office but actually have access to counseling. Uh, but in a way, it's a double-edged sword uh, uh, for both employers and employees. It's because there is a realization that uh, if, if, you're, if you're an employee in, in a company that provides you know, free counseling or easy access to counseling, it will be somewhere on your record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is definitely fear uh, you know, that this will have an implication on your uh, career path and so on. Uh, so the whole the idea behind it is good. I'm glad we talk about it. I'm glad there's more investments made. Uh, But the whole process is still not quite figured out. Yeah, I have to say, I wouldn't want to tell my, you know, I've got great bosses here. But I but on one level, I don't think it's any of their business if I'm struggling with my mental health. I'm not quite sure I'd, I'd want them to know. And they might take you off the air being afraid that you might say yes, things on air that, that you shouldn't, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly the problem with the stigma. So that's often yeah. the, the reaction of employers when they hear about uh, employees uh, struggling in any way. Um, that, uh, that, yeah, it might have a serious implication on, the, uh, on, on their business. It's a real catch-22, isn't it? Mm. Uh, Jan, thank you so much for coming in to speak to us. Really, You've really sort of framed the, the issues that we're facing and, and the sort of complexities in it. So it's been a great pleasure to have you join us in the studio. All the way from, from Switzerland, uh, Jan Gerber, he's the CEO of Paracelsus Recovery. Uh, that's a rehab centre in Switzerland. Uh, obviously very knowledgeable on the subject of mental health. Uh, Jan, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure's mine, Georgia. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. Loving all your messages that are coming through on 4001. Uh, Jennifer texts in, without insurance covered mental health care, I don't know how I would have made it living so far from home over the last 16 years. A city with so many expats should come with such coverage as it is an apparent need. Jennifer, thank you very much indeed for that message. And yeah, we are looking at mental health in the workplace, mental health in the UAE right now. I was actually chatting with a campaigner ahead of Mental Health Day, which is marked on the 10th today each year. And I was really surprised by some of the statistics I got. Did you know that the estimated return on investment for employers who choose to invest in the mental health of their workplace is $5 for every dollar spent? Now, that is according to a study by Deloitte, which is a pretty solid investment return, isn't it? I mean... $5 $5 for every dollar you spent. But but it sort of just leaves this overarching question of why are business owners still not taking that leap to sort of proactively invest in workplace well-being? And why aren't they buying insurance policies that cover it? So joining me to discuss that nitty gritty subject of the health insurance policy is Stephen McLaren. He's Director of Corporate Solutions for Seven Insurance Brokers. Stephen, lovely to have you in the studio. How are you? Good, Georgia. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's lovely to have you join us. Tell me, why don't... Well, my first question to you was going to be, why don't insurance companies cover mental health insurance? And this is what I said to you last night when I arranged for you to come on the show. I'm going to let you answer that because it's an important question to ask, even though I now know the answer. Okay, so why don't insurance companies cover mental health? Insurance companies can cover mental health, and it's a a four-letter word beginning with a C. Be careful. It's for cost. It's cost. It's as simple as cost. So there are policies, the companies are just not paying for it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's down to when you're in, there's two sections, really, when you're in a a small scheme where you're kind of 
put into what's called a book rated or community rated scheme where you can select some options that uh, the insurance company will provide. And the, the changes or uplifts for psychotherapy or mental health, they're not high. And the more often that's the amount you're given, take it or leave it. And your variables will be more likely on dental or optical that people seem to understand. And people go for the things that they use more often. And it's conversations I have with clients regularly. The larger accounts, if an employer wants to have unlimited mental health issues covered, they can do so for a cost. How much is that cost? Like when you're doing the when you're doing the drop downs and yeah. you're sort of adding in extras. I know, for example, that my dentistry I only get that half uh, rather than all of it. Um, mental health, I'm not quite sure. Actually, I probably need to look at the policy. I know I get certain amount of counselling sessions, but you know what? What's the uplift if you can get? If you, I mean, you normally have inpatient for mental health and then outpatient, so you've got two distinct areas. And inpatients obviously are more serious, yeah, and they'll more likely have a higher limit than there. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I'm looking at some schemes where you've got 5,000 dirhams for outpatient, which is, is it enough? It's, it's how long is a piece of string? Um, I mean, anyone that you're going to get counselling from will say two sessions probably isn't enough and you need more. Yeah, I'd so, say eight to ten probably. Yeah, I mean, it, it's more that sort of level that you need to try and get over. And it's, are you ever over what you're going to see the, the therapist for? So how much would it add to the cost of a policy if a company was going to put it on? I, mean, I know that's a bit of a long piece of string, kind of. It really does depend. Yeah. On a claims-rated scheme, what the insurer would look at is what were the claims the previous year, maybe a little bit of the year before that, and work out, well, hang on, people aren't really claiming it, and pitch the price accordingly to try and still make money out of you. Okay, so say um, you're a sort of SME and you're looking at the costs of insurance uh, and you wanted to add mental health, but it just was absolutely outrageous. It just meant that the policies went up and they were just far too expensive for you. Is there a cheaper way of providing your staff with mental there health? There are online options where you can go and get counselling and typically from America. I'm not aware of anyone doing it in the UAE. There may be perhaps as a company doing online counselling uh, or through an application, in which case obviously they can call in and let you know. Uh, that would be the probably most cost effective way of doing it. Um, face-to-face is much more expensive because you're physically going to be seeing them each time. Um, and it really depends on what the employer wants to do. If you're a larger employer, you could certainly look at an employee assistance programme, often shortened to EAP. So you might see it on a table of benefits or a summary saying an EAP. And it's often a tick box when it's included with the insurance, often sadly forgotten about. But if you did a standalone one, it can be very inexpensive depending on the options that you'll take. If you want to get the stage of the full cover, it can be as low as 100 dirhams a person per year. So that's something that a company could sign up for separate from their health insurance policy? Yes. And it's, uh, is that provided by dif- different providers entirely? There are different providers. There's only one, to my knowledge, that's actually in the region here called ICAS. And they've uh, been one of the few COVID-busting industries when before COVID they had about 150,000 lives covered. They're now well over 500,000. My goodness me, that is what Brandy Scott was called anecdotal evidence of an increase in sort of mental health awareness and, and mental health problems potentially I would say yeah definitely it's definitely picked up and during COVID obviously a lot of things happened and people were stuck at home and mental health was a huge issue so that's one of the biggest contributing factors as to why the volumes increased have you noticed that more companies are asking for it that more people are asking for it's it? it's asked more but again it comes down to I mean of the recent conversations I've had with clients it's not something crops up a lot uh, well-being is something that's talked about, but again, it's where do they get the budget to spend on a well-being? So that getting return of investment, as with you, I, it seems common sense to me. Yeah. 
But I'm not aware of many companies that actually take the plunge, and my evidence in terms of actually going and doing it. They're certainly talked about more than it was before. Um, but when companies are particularly facing increases on medical insurance costs, accountants are involved, procurement are involved, and they're looking at an increase of, you know, they're expecting it to be salary increases. That never has happened in the, God, 18 years that I've been here. You're looking at double-digit returns, apart from the odd year, uh, increase in premium every year. And then where does the budget come to spend on it? And I think that's really down to employees. Should employers do more surveys and actually start asking them, what is important to you? And employees typically just tick what's important to them at that point in time, I would have said in examples I've seen. Do you know, I think one of the interesting elements might be as as Jan Gerber, who we were just talking to earlier, yeah. that, you know, that people don't want to admit to their employer employer that they might need mental health services that there is still that stigma attached to it you know that i think we go through that problem yes interesting stuff really uh, a very knotty issue plenty of things to unpick there Uh, stephen mclaren thank you so much for joining us in the studio really appreciate it stephen of course director of corporate solutions for seven insurance brokers thank you so much for your time you're most welcome george pleasure much Hello there, welcome back to the programme. Now, Al-Raha Beach, which is near Khalifa City in Abu Dhabi, is currently closed to swimmers amid concerns about the quality of seawater in the area. Now, the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi has deemed the water to be safe, but say that they are conducting a thorough investigation to assess any potential environmental effects that might occur. Now, residents have noticed the water changing colour over several months and the property management company, Provis, have put it down to algal bloom uh, and that was in a letter sent to locals. This resident, who wants to remain anonymous, told us that it really has affected life in the community. So we moved into Al-Raha Beach area around 12 years ago. The compounds offered lovely beaches, clear blue waters... I mean, it was just amazing. We even saw dolphins from time to time. But in the past few years, it has really changed. The water has turned murky, especially in the past year, I would say. There's algae blooming and we have seen a lot of jellyfish swept up on the beach dead. And the smell from the beaches are just horrendous at times. this time the beaches are closed you can't even go there and it's something that we really I mean we missed that that's why we chose to live here but as it stands right now it just isn't one of the benefits of living here anymore. So we've got a little bit of a sort of discrepancy there. The Environment Agency Abu Dhabi says the water is safe, but obviously the management company Provis advising that people don't go onto the beach. So we're joined now, we want to get some sort of shed some light on this. So we're joined on the line now, Professor Shadi Armin. Now he's a biological oceanographer at NYU Abu Dhabi. He's actually been studying the water for some time around the Al-Raha beach area. He joins me now on the line. Professor Armin, thank you very much indeed for your time. Tell me, you know, what is causing the change of colour of, of the seawater around Al-Raha Beach? Thank you, Georgia, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, so the main reason for the, the big colour change there is really you have these microscopic algae that grow out of control. And then because like plants, they do photosynthesis, they have colour and that colour basically discolours the water and, and thus it looks basically unhealthy to, to beachgoers. 
So is it pollution? You know, could it, uh, and then then you get into the sort of definition of pollution, I suppose, could it have an adverse effect on humans? Or does it just look and smell quite bad? So it really depends on the type of bloom. We've been examining this one particularly for the past few months, and we've been working closely with the environmental agency. Um, this one is started at actually uh, at species that's actually not not very good for the environment and actually would cause health hazard. However, that bloom has dissipated, and we have now new species that come up, which is a common thing in, in, in blooms where you have different species coming and going over time. Okay, so this latest bloom isn't bad for humans, but still not very pleasant to swim in. So. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be careful in saying this, but um, I cannot inconclusively say um, that it is indeed not harmful. Uh, we're doing tests as we speak right now to determine that. Um, but indications from the past, at least, was that for some time it was uh, a harmful and then that harmful species went away. And now we have new species coming in that we're just following as we go. How can we get rid of it? Because never mind whether it's harmful or not, people don't like to swim in murky water. We like lovely, clear, fresh water where you can sort of see down to the bottom and you don't get worried about sharks. So typically when these things happen, it happens because of high nutrient input into where these blooms occur. And so typically agricultural runoff is one cause. It could be storms, um, uh, these, you know, uh, industrial plants that are dumping things in the water. All of these things can cause blooms to occur. Um, I can tell you from my perspective, we still don't know the cause of this. Uh, We know that it's been happening for the past six months. And I presume that it's probably going to continue to happen for the next few months, at least until the winter comes in. Um, We're working with a government agency to try to figure out where might be places where these nutrients are coming from and thus be able to to really uh, resolve that issue. However, in terms of just solving the, the cause of the bloom without dealing with the nutrients, there's really nothing that you can really do. The only thing you can do is restrict access to the beach. And, and if you basically remove the causes of nutrient input into that, then, then eventually. So sadly, that, I mean, that's a sad situation for, for the residents of the Al-Raha Beach area. That is sort of near Khalifa City. For the most part, you know, as an oceanographer, you probably look at the seawater around the whole of the UAE to, you know, to a, a sort of lesser or more extent. Is the seawater here mostly pretty safe, mostly pretty pollutant-free? Yeah, so in general, the water along the UAE coast is, is generally fine. There are incidences of blooms that occur. Most of them tend to not be harmful. Um, we don't know, we don't have a really good grasp on how often they occur, and mainly that's because we still don't have infrastructure to do uh, wide-scale monitoring across the coasts. Uh, I'm part of an environmental center where we're trying to do that. Um, and, and basically, that's kind of one of our main goals. But in general, the water is safe in the UAE. It's, it's, this is, a, I would say, a, a very odd example of a really, really bad bloom that's been going on for a very long time. Professor Shadi Amen reassuring all of us that we can still go in the water, which is, let's be honest, our sort of main activity at the moment, considering how hot it still is. Uh, thank you very much indeed for your time. Really appreciate it. Professor Shadi Amen, biological oceanographer at NYU Abu Dhabi. He's been studying the water around the UAE, specifically around Al Raha Beach since April. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Climate Conversations on the Agenda. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. 
Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. Fantastic to start our climate conversations uh, season again. It is uh, it's an, a sort of a whole sort of series of episodes uh, that we are doing as a station wide project. Uh, so I'm glad to be bearing the mantle uh, for today here on the agenda for the next sort of half hour or so. And I'm going to start with a little bit of music, which is sort of, you know, unexpected, I suppose, from the agenda. But have a listen to this. Okay, so why am I playing you a sort of slightly scratchy version of Coldplay? Well, that is because that is them live at uh, Expo 2020 Dubai uh, when they played at the event. And they are just one band that are looking to make their events more environmentally friendly. Now, their concert uh, setup now includes really wild things like kinetic dance floors. Uh, there's also stationary bikes that the audience can jump on. And the idea between both of those is that, you know, you get the audience participation, that they actually generate energy and that goes into batteries that then powers the show. Uh, the band is also, you know, pledging to plant millions of trees, including one for every ticket sold. And the reason why they went in for that is because they were genuinely concerned that that touring, hosting concerts all around the world was deeply environmentally friendly. It just didn't gel with their sustainability goals. So I mean, I remember Chris Martin saying it and, and to, you know, to be fair, he's put his money where, where his mouth is. He said, we won't tour unless we can do it in an eco-friendly way. So that is sort of, that was the big headline grabbing sort of move. But but I think it's fair to say that the events industry more widely has realised that it needs to go green. And obviously, MICE or meetings, incentives, conferences and exhibitions really is one of the sort of lifebloods of the tourism sector here. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined in the studio by Danny Klima. He's the Venue Portfolio Director at Ethara. Uh, Danny, great to have you join us in the studio. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. Well, it's lovely to have you here. And uh, for those people who might not have heard of Ethara, where have you been? Under a rock. Um, you guys are behind... I mean, massive events such as the F1 uh, in Abu Dhabi, which, of course, is only eight weeks away. Terrifying, sold, right? <laughs> sold out, am I right? Yes, most of our, our ticket categories are sold out and, and we're in the final stages of uh, getting our tickets ready out to, to go to the customers. And seven it's actually seven weeks. <laughs> seven weeks, oh yeah, my goodness. So every day counts at this moment. Yeah, I can only imagine. But, I mean, you're, you're clearly a, a massive events organiser mm. and therefore... And the F1, not known for being the most eco-friendly of events, one might argue. Yeah, so what's, uh, what's kind of kicked things off was back in 2019 when Formula One, they, they released their uh, net zero strategy and uh, also the FIA have their uh, 2030 strategy as well. So it was, a good, it was a good catalyst for us to take a look at ourselves as a business and as an event organiser and, and really align to, to, to all the things that they were starting to do. Um, as, as a business at the time and a venue operator, we, we'd been doing small sustainability uh, initiatives around the business facilities or uh, corporate or through supply chain. Um, and, and 2019 was really the, the time when it all came together. Um, we formed a committee, um, got the CEO uh, support, and, and that really kind of paved the way for us to start you know, taking sustainability seriously. 
So what type of initiatives came out of that committee? You know, what type of things are you introducing, not just at the F1, but on a sort of more general level, because you have other big events under your umbrella, don't you? Yeah, exactly. So we operate um, a number of venues, uh, Etihad Arena being being another big one that staging uh, lots of events uh, that are coming up. Loads of concerts. You guys have been busy over the summer busy. booking people. <laughs> or, I mean, actually, some of these stars have been booked, uh, you know, much, uh, up to a year in advance, I yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah correct. And um, the, the main initiatives that we've been focused, in, focused on since the integration um, and, and the launch of Athara is really you know, refining our corporate policy, uh, working through our net zero strategy framework, which which kind of creates three main pillars for us to look at the business and events through and, and really zero in on nine particular goals that, that, we, uh, that we're driving through the business. Um, so policies and procedures, uh, we've been awarded the ISO 20121, which is an international standards organisation. It's, it's a global certification for the way we plan and deliver the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And we've also been awarded the ISO standard 14001, which, which is the way uh, we operate Yas Marina Circuit as a venue. So with those two certifications and, and our FIA three-star environmental management certification, we're only one of two, two uh, promoters on the F1 calendar that, that have these credentials. So we're, we're really proud of that. Uh, we, we're really leading the, the, the pack globally um, from an F1 promoter perspective and regionally, I would I would say we're definitely um, you know leading the the region um, in the Gulf. It's interesting how you've really lent into this, and I think that's what companies in every single sector, not just in the UAE but around the world, are going to be required to do. I think also on a personal level, we're all just going to have to lean in a bit when it comes to looking at our eco impact, so to speak. I, th- I think that's important. Um, that's definitely you can't shy away from it. You have to acknowledge acknowledge it and lean into it, and you you need to measure your impact. And we've done we've been doing that since two thousand and nineteen. Uh, we baselined our carbon footprint. We um, became a signatory for the United Nations Sports for Climate Action, and we've been continuing to to uh, put improvements in the way we operate and remeasure year on year. So we're, we're you know we're doing some good work in some areas. There are other areas where we need to. To improve, um, we've just completed a, a, a major technology project where we've uh, upgraded our track lighting to LED. Um, so we had a we had a, a previous technology and we've we've uh, upgraded it to a to a new technology and that will reduce our energy consumption by thirty percent. I mean that is a huge step, mm. and I'm going to have to ask you the tricky question. You know, is it is it expensive doing things like that? Is it is it still quite expensive to be greener? Sustainability comes with with a cost. There, there is there is a cost. Uh, you you need you need to have investment in technology. You need to invest in time in the business. You know, people have to commit their their time to to coming to the table and having conversations. and And it's it's not always uh, it's not always on the front of people's mind. And commercial profits are important. Mm-hmm. Um, Revenue is important. Uh, so the challenge is getting all all of the different parties to a, to the table and having a balanced conversation and agreeing a way forward. This this is where the net zero strategy comes in. This is where the steering committee comes in. Um, our CEO chairs it, and we we have all of the senior leadership team come and, and we meet and we talk about sustainability matters, and we talk about what we're going to do over the next three to five years. So we have a roadmap. 
Um, and, and yeah, there's an investment. We put business cases forward. Some are very good in, in, in terms of reducing operating costs. Um, some... Yeah, so I suppose if you've got the fancy LEDs, mm. you're using less power, good for the environment, yep. but also smaller electricity bill. Small electricity bill and uh, much more capability. So stay tuned for the final uh, light show on, oh, the, wow. uh, on the Sunday night of the Grand Prix. Oh, that is very awesome. Okay, that, that's very exciting. I mean, how about things that, um, that, you know, that are sort of specific to the events industry, the disposable elements? So you've got, I mean, you'll tell me, how many people have you got coming to the final concert uh, for the F1 on Sunday night, do you reckon? Yeah, we'll be, we'll be anywhere between forty to 50,000 at the concert itself and, and on Yas Island, um, we'll be anywhere around 70,000 70, people on, on race day. So it's, it's a huge amount of people uh, making their way to the circuit. And drinking out of disposable cups, eating off disposable food containers. You know, have you, do you look into, you know, do you get into the minutiae of even that? We do. Um, the, the, the management processes that we have in place through the ISO standards kind of encourage the teams to, to work with suppliers and, and have those conversations. We're really proud of the way we've developed over the last few years, particularly around the F&B um, operations. We've studied, we've studied the patterns of when people arrive so that we don't have too much food produced that goes to waste. So we use all this analytical um, uh, data that we collect year on year and, and we sit with the, the producers of the food and we make sure that they're producing to the right volumes for the right amount of people um, we've moved away from tickets so i remember back in the day when you would have yeah, got your I'd ticket have a t- and, and the, i suppose you still need the wristband we still need the wristband extent. that's that's yeah. a that's a crowd safety um aspect for us but you would remember back in the day you, you'd get your pack and you'd open it up and oh, you'd yeah, get your tickets. Oh, yeah, there'd be reams of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So we've eliminated all that. We've got digital, a digital ticket now, um, straight to the phone, straight through the, through, the ga- uh, through the gates and into the venue. So we've progressively looked at different parts of the event and looked at where we can be more efficient um, operationally and, and then also um, from the sustainability lens as well. Really interesting stuff. Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to come into the studio to talk to us about this. Really interesting to hear how, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily put the events sort of uh, industry at the forefront of sort of needing to make sustainable choices. You know, you tend to think of oil and gas, you tend to think of automotive industries. But obviously, you know, every single sector is going to have to start this sort of um, self self. I was going to say navel gazing, but it's positive. <laughs> you know, every, no, but everyone needs to look at themselves, right? Everyone needs to look at how they carry out their business and, and exactly. to figure out how to be more sustainable. Yeah, and, and we need to um, also, you know, take the feedback from the customers and give them the choice to be sustainable. Like, how are they going to get to the event in a sustainable manner? We need to, we need to engineer that. It just doesn't happen. We have a large stakeholder group. So, we, you know, we work with Department of Transport. Um, we work with... Uh, Yas Mall, which is a major park and ride hub, so we have to we have to look at the way we architect our products and services and, and bring them to market and give give our customers and fans the choice to be sustainable. Really fantastic to have you join us. Thank you very much indeed. You've just been listening to the voice of Danny Klima. He's Venue Portfolio Director at Ethara. Uh, they are responsible for things like the F1 and also Etihad Arena. Climate Conversations on the Agenda. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. Well, that came round quickly. Welcome back to your Climate Conversations episode on the Agenda. It is our chance to basically put the spotlight on sustainable... 
I suppose, sustainability stories. Uh, that's what we like to do here on the agenda. We look at the news headlines uh, and we bring the most interesting ones to you. Uh, so this uh, climate conversation just means we'd put a sort of eco-friendly lens on everything. And we have been so far this morning discussing how events can become more eco-friendly. We're going to turn now our attention. It's sort of linked because we're turning our attention to a site which, of course, is playing host to a massive event later this year. Of course, COP28 is going to be hosted at Expo City Dubai. Now, what is now a neighbourhood, obviously it hosted Expo 2020, but is now, you know, a sort of residential neighbourhood. And they've just unveiled a decarbonisation roadmap. Um, I need to find out what it is, first of all. Uh, We want to know whether, uh, you know, it really is going to be an eco-friendly community. And I'm pleased to say that that one sort of nod in the right direction is that they have a chief of sustainability. I don't know how many other neighbourhoods have one of those. Uh, Who joins me now in the studio? Welcome, Matt Brown. How are you? Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Georgia. Nice of you to have me. Well, it's very good to have you here. And um, you have just released this decarbonisation roadmap. Uh, I mean... First of all, what is it? <laughs> I don't really know what it is. I mean, I've imagined the clues in the name. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's a long title, isn't it, um, for some of your listeners? But yeah. to, to try and break that down, under the, the UAE Net Zero 2050, um, we're looking to try and raise the bar at Expo City Dubai on a blueprint for sustainable living. So, so, so what is that? For us, it was about trying to paint a, a roadmap, a plan, a strategy to, to look at the next 27 years, to break it down into a set of long-term bold targets um, to really push the envelope on what we can try and do within sustainability, to set meaningful and, and scientifically targeted medium-term goals, and then to prove some, some, some points in the short term um, to get us onto that curve, um, to, to really build on the platform that we had as, as sustainability as a sub-theme to Expo 2020, and to now look at the future and, and turn it into real meaningful action. It's really interesting how, um, how things are changing here uh, as far as the sort of way, the way in which the sort of construction industry is looking at things, the way in which uh, neighbourhoods are looking at things, but I think it is still pretty unusual for you, for any sort of neighbourhood to have a decarbonisation roadmap. How much of that decision was influenced by the fact that you're going to be the host venue for COP28 in, in the coming months? Yeah, so we look. We, fe- we felt it was important to be transparent. First of all, to come out um, to, to be one of the first, uh, as you put it, neighbourhoods for us, city community um, that, that went out publicly to really show um, what we want to achieve in the long term. So it, it wasn't necessarily something that that we we came out with because we were the hosts of COP28. For us, the starting place for for COP28 as an event was, was the legacy piece in its truest sort of definition of sustainability. We were looking to the long term. And that's why this, this, this roadmap really looks to the next few decades. Now, clearly, the opportunity of, of hosting COP28 presents us with a raft of opportunities that we can actually achieve some real short-term gains. And for us, it's then not about taking any backward step, but actually using it as a, as a springboard as to how we move on beyond the event into 2024. There's a lot of building going on on the site. Obviously, a lot of the pavilions had to be demolished or taken down. and Sometimes they're rebuilt in, in their home countries, aren't they? Uh, and several have been demolished, although less than at a normal expo, which is worth mentioning. And you've got your three legacy pavilions that were always going to be there, the opportunity, sustainability and mobility. But there is a lot of movement of buildings going down and then buildings going up again. How are you, construction traditionally not the most sort of eco-friendly of, of industries, how are you keeping that 
sort of within your decarbonisation programme? How, you know, how can you align those two things where you're having to build, but, but you're trying to stay green? Yeah, I think, look, it's a really good question. It presents a challenge. It's not easy. Um, but I think that we've, we've put a number of things in place. I think to your question there about change, we've, um, we've held over 80% of the infrastructure that was put in place for Expo 2020. And that, certainly going back to the COP28 question, was, was made, as we believe, an ideal host um, venue in, in you know, using some of the sustainable items that are there in place already as part of the infrastructure. I think that in terms of the, the construction part, clearly, yes, we are still building Expo Valley, Mangrove residences um, in terms of a residential offering and our commercial tenants to come. Um, but we feel the key, the key word in that is being responsible about that build. Now, whether that's um, the likes of the, the, the LEED certifications with some of our energy management, we've managed to reduce energy um, by, by 33% for the majority of our buildings. We've got the likes of our Terra Sustainability Pavilion, obviously pushing the boundaries as a flagship sustainability venue. And I think for the new construction projects to come, we've looked at uh, another raft of, of measures in addition. We're, we're the first well community uh, to be signed up. We've actually got... Uh, 23 of our buildings about to uh, qualify as, as, as well uh, health and safety um, certified. Um, and the likes of the, the kind of uh, e- eco-reserve that we're going to put in as part of, of Expo Valley are just a, a number of things where we're trying to look at ultimately a challenge of constructing new buildings, um, but, but trying to, to do that with a reduction of carbon. We're trying to reduce our carbon footprint in the build of, of what we call the embodied carbon by 40% by 20, 2030, which is, which is above and beyond most, most projects. Do you think that what you're doing could be replicated in other neighbourhoods? Or is the reality that, that you know, this is a government project and being sustainable is quite expensive? Um, yeah, look, I, I think a similar question to, to, to Danny previously. Yeah. Um, we don't like to think of it as kind of expensive or not expensive. Sustainability is, is about environmental, social and economic um, pillars. And people sometimes forget that economic pillar. I think to be truly sustainable, you know, we, we, we can't just exist in the, in the loss column of a profit and loss column. For that. We, we're trying to look at ways uh, it, with that economic value to really invest into the future so that any, any cost is coming with a long-term payback. Otherwise, we're not going to be truly sustainable. Um, you know, people naturally jump to the environmental aspects. But I think that for us, it was important to build something that was lasting. You know, under the, the 2040 Dubai uh, Urban Master Plan, for us, it was about developing these buildings, developing these, these new projects, but keeping to some pretty strong true values. Uh, and to your question around other projects, you know, we hope to lead the way. We hope to really set some new benchmarks, just like we did when we hosted Expo 2020. Really interesting stuff. Matt Brown, Chief of Sustainability for Expo City Dubai. A pleasure to have you join us in the studio. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Yeah, that does bring us to the close of our Climate Conversations episode for today. But don't worry, uh, one of the other programmes will be taking up the mantle uh, next week. So you can stay tuned. And remember, you can download all of our Climate Conversations episodes. Just check out our website, dubaii1038.com. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia here, keeping you company all the way through until one o'clock. And we're going to turn our attention now to house prices in Abu Dhabi, because you couldn't help have noticed the headline yesterday. An under-construction oceanfront mansion in Abu Dhabi has hit the market for 98 million dirhams. It is the most expensive villa on the market in the UAE capital. 
you know, that's a headline you're used to seeing from Dubai, not necessarily from Abu Dhabi. And it's not even ready to move into. They can't have it till the end of 2025. It's in the Ohana by the Sea development. Only gets seven bedrooms for your 98 million dirhams. Um, so, yeah, I mean, does this mean that house prices in Abu Dhabi are starting to become a little bit more like Dubai. Let's find out. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Andrew Coville. He's from Henry Wiltshire Estate Agents and he joins me now on the line. Tell me, Andrew, what's going on in Abu Dhabi? What's what's the deal? Is house prices, villa prices, are they ratcheting up at speed? Hi, Georgia. Um, yes, we're, uh, we're a lot busier here now. I think the Dubai effect is hitting Abu Dhabi. I think for some time we've seen various sectors in a lot more demand and things like you just mentioned, obviously, is a very small sector of the market, but we've had a lot of interest from Dubai in uh, beachfront villas in Sadia, for example, on a natural white sand beach that doesn't exist um, in Dubai easily. Um, But across the board, we're a lot busier, there's a lot more people coming in. A uh, lot more employment, a lot more development, and uh, both across the rental and the sale markets, we're, we're busy. Do you think that people are looking at Dubai because they're going to be working in Dubai? And then they're thinking, my goodness me, can't afford that. I'll do the commute, but in the opposite direction to the traditional commute. It, it, do you think that, that you're getting sort of, I suppose, you know, Dubai refugees, economic refugees, so to speak? Funny, we were just chatting in the office earlier about that, and it, it used to be the other way around um, some years ago. But um, I, I think so. We are we're definitely seeing migration from Dubai. Companies setting up second offices here. There's a lot of um, new people internationally. But the the commute the other way around. Um, I think it is a possibility. I understand the traffic's just got so bad in Dubai now. People are saying they've got to live near their schools. Um, but Abu Dhabi is a, a different option. Yeah, I have to say we do. Well, Jennifer Crichton, my producer, does the travel updates every day. She always looks at the capital. There is never anything to report unless there's fog and then it all slows down a bit. But it still runs very smoothly indeed. And of course, those Saudi out beaches, you're quite right. They are completely stunning. How about, I mean, let me ask just for some numbers first. What would you say is the uplift in, for example, rent a villa sales and, and then apartment sales over the last year? Uh, it's, I mean, Abu Dhabi's very distinct areas. You've got the original city in Corniche, but that's only for rental. Expats can't buy there. Then Ream Island developed quite early on, which is a, a high-rise development with quite a lot of availability. Uh, then the likes of Sadiat, Raha Beach, Yas Island. Um, so each area has its own uh, attributes and own demand pointers. Um, Ream, for example, as I say, is a lot of high-rise towers. There is more availability. Uh, prices are up a little, probably 5 to 10, uh, something like that. Uh, Sadiat, particularly if it's the uh, rarity on the beach or close to the sea, we've seen probably uh, 20%, maybe 30 in some cases. We just sold a villa on the beach for 27 million that was probably 15, 18 months ago, something like that. Oh, so wow, yeah. properties, big jumps, something that you can't get elsewhere. Um, original developments in Al-Raha Beach uh, that have been around for around 10 years, but always in, in demand, particularly with the sea view. 
they're probably 10 to 20 percent um, similar in Yas Island. So there's a lot of focus on Yas Island now. Um, slightly more affordable than Sadiat, but there's a lot of focus. You were talking about the F1 and Robbie Williams earlier. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, new developments. And it's a very different place to how it used to be. I've been here 15 years and the retail and restaurant scene and um, facilities, uh, there's a, a lot more. Abu Dhabi's really, really grown and developed. I'm really interested by this idea of this uh, reverse commute uh, from uh, from Abu Dhabi to Dubai. Tell me about the rental prices for people who are, are more in that market. H- have they also been increasing in the same way as the, the, the prices have been increasing? Pretty well proportionally, yeah. Um, we've seen very big jumps in certain areas, nice apartments with a sea view. I'll give you a couple of examples on Yas Island. There's a one bedroom in a development we've been working on golf course and sea views um they were probably 18 months ago 70,000 then moved to around 90 and we just leased one for 115,000 so on a rough calculation that's about 40 percent um villas particularly in demand is a real there's been a big villa shortage for a long time in Abu Dhabi um but uh, there's a development in Sadiat Hidal Sadiat uh, where you do have the villas on the beach but even something in the interior of the development with a close walk to the beach, uh, four-bedroom villa there um, has moved from probably 380 up to about 550 now. So 30%, five-bedroom, 500 to 650. So big jumps and very, very little availability. So it's, it's supply and demand. So it's still not like a mega drop from the costs in Dubai like that all sound, still sounds quite pricey so you're not going to be saving an absolute fortune by by moving south to the capital no again it, it depends on the area very much and Dubai has got more areas but it's probably more interlinked here they're a bit more disparate but um, in Raha Beach you can get a nice two-bedroom with a sea view for one twenty, one thirty thousand. Oh no, that's um, bad at all. That's a lot less than the marina right now. That that's that's good. <laughs> easy access to Dubai. You know, that's marina in forty five minutes. Really interesting stuff, Andrew. Uh, plenty more to sort of unpick there over the next few minutes. I've got to go to the news now, but it's been a great pleasure to have you join us here on the agenda. Andrew Koval there from Henry Wiltshire Estate Agents, making me want to move south. turn our attention uh, away from mental health for a few minutes. It's going to be joined on the line as ever uh, at 10.35 every day uh, by the fabulous Chris McCarty, head of ARN Sport, because we are going to take a look at those sporting headlines. Chris, we're going to start with the Cricket World Cup, uh, not least because there's a, there's a lot going on in the Cricket World Cup at the moment. It certainly is. It's non-stop. Good morning, Georgia. Good morning to your listeners. And uh, yes, a double header today. I've been keeping an eye on the text messages, England currently in action against Bangladesh. You've also got a little later Pakistan taking on Sri Lanka. And then yesterday you had New Zealand beating the Dutch. So they're two for two are the Kiwis, but it's just relentless at this moment in time. The Cricket World Cup, the Rugby World Cup, international football to look forward to as well, Georgia. It's all going off. It really is. But I'm really interested by this headline. I wanted to ask you about it. Um, There is news overnight that cricket could be added to the Olympic schedule for 2028. Now, considering 
darts is on the Olympic schedule. How is cricket not on it yet? Yeah, it's crazy that you've got to go back to 1900, Georgia, for the last time that cricket appeared on an Olympic kind of calendar or schedule. But yes, consultation overnight that the organisers have put forward cricket as a viable option for 2028 in Los Angeles, of all places. So the US clearly keen to grow the sport of cricket and we'll have a decision on this quickly. Uh, The IOC will ratify this at some point next week. So a confirmation in the next seven days or so that cricket may well be back on the Olympic calendar for 2020. That would be 128 years that last appeared in the Olympic Games. It's a massive movement that and confirmation that it will be T20 cricket, not T10 cricket as some have assumed, but T20 cricket that will be the vehicle with which to sell cricket to the world once again. I have to admit, I've looked it up, darts is not an Olympic sport yet. No, and it should be. You know, I bought some darts. Darts is the best sport on the planet right now, uh, after football, that is. So watch this space for darts. It shouldn't. One... It's not a sport. Standing no, around and on, throwing Georgia. something is not a sport. Come on, I will have this debate all day long. <laughs> darts is the fastest growing sport. Certainly in the UK, you speak to the powers that be at Sky Sports, one of the host broadcasters over in the UK. No sport is trending quite like darts. That's a conversation for a different day. It is a conversation. It's a debate for another day. I'm probably Friday at this rate. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to take you up on that. They're also talking about adding esports, which is playing computer yeah. games to, to various Olympic sort of level competitions. Um, okay, let's uh, stay with uh, let's talk about the, the F1. Rumour has it that conditions are going to change on the F1 schedule. What's the yeah. deal with that? Something to do with Qatar's Brutal left driver. What? What? <laughs> I don't know where you're getting any of that from. Uh, so what it is, uh, the FIA have confirmed in the last 24 hours that they will look at their schedule. This follows a brutal Qatar Grand Prix. That was the word used by Mercedes driver George Russell. Uh, we saw that Logan Sargent, the American, the Williams driver, he was forced to retire. Uh, we heard stories of players uh, uh, being sick say players, drivers being sick in their helmets. Alex Albon, the Williams driver, he required medical treatment. George Russell himself said that he almost fainted. Brutal conditions over 30 degrees Celsius. Because in Formula One, the tracks are hot. It has been unseasonable in this time of year. The humidity is still so high. So the FIA have confirmed that they may have to look at their schedule. The Qatar Grand Prix next year is actually going to be held a little later, which will help the drivers. But yes, the FIA so, so keen to ensure the well-being of all of the F1 drivers. And they've said that they will look at perhaps tweaking the schedule for 2024. Uh, Chris, we've got a slightly choppy line, but I'm going to press on because I want to talk about the Rugby World Cup hosts, uh, France, of course, uh, because they have had a major boost, haven't they, ahead of their quarterfinal against South Africa, which is up yeah. and coming. Indeed, yes. Uh, Sunday night for that one, Georgia. Confirmation, Antoine Dupont. They are wonderful scrum half, the best rugby player on the planet. You may recall back on September 21st against Namibia, he suffered a broken cheekbone. There was some suggestion that that would see him ruled out for the rest of the World Cup. Not a jot of it, though. Confirmation yesterday, he was given the all-clear by his medics. He's back in training. Great news for fans of France. Terrible news for fans of South Africa because he is a little magician. When he fancies it, there is no rugby player on the planet that can touch him. So, 
Yes, Antoine Dupont back in training, all being well, should take to the starting 15 for France in that mouth-watering quarter-final against the defending world champion South Africa on Sunday night. Kick-off in that one over in Paris, of course, 11pm. That is very exciting indeed. Uh, oddly enough, I, I saw that injury. It looked it looked awful. So it's fantastic that he's still able to to play and and obviously a, 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 literally a linchpin of, of of the French team, as I understand Absolutely. it. Chris, as ever, thank you very much indeed. If you want to hear more from the wonderful Chris McCarty, you know all you need to do is tune in from five until eight. It is your drive time show. It is off script, and Chris is joined by Sonal and Robbie. Uh, Robbie only occasionally sings, um, although you wouldn't know that from the from the the trails that are running at the moment. Uh, also, you heard an awful lot about Chris and what he gets up to uh, when he's not on air uh, from the uh, from the trailers that are running on the Dubai I station, for example. Sonal says that he calls her when he's on the loo, which is just awful. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.